You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. The first pitches have been thrown in action in spring training, and White Sox baseball is back. It feels like it never left. What was that, like a a six-run first by an an aging non-roster invitee relief pitcher who started a game? Jesse Chavez, I think your career is over. It was a good one. It wasn't a bad one. It was a good Good one. Good career. Good, solid career, but Christopher Morrell took you deep on like your fourth (laughs) pitch of spring training, and, and... There's 70 players in camp. Uh, adios, muchachos. Yeah, I'm there's sorry. 70 players in camp, and you're a guy yeah. just trying to keep your keep yourself out there in the sun for one more season. And I I think you should have been more prepared than that. Uh, like I'm all for snap judgments here in spring training. There's too many guys competing for jobs. All right, this is like the Hunger Games. Somebody's got to die first. Jesse Chavez, you're off the island. Right. Literally, literally, as I'm watching it, Tim Elko hits a home run, and I'm like, all right, Tim Elko, maybe he's got something. He's, he's on the island. Out. He's on the island. Keep no, he struck out. He, he struck out his next at bat and looked really bad. And off I'm like, the no, you're, you're off the island. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's how I want to treat it's that fast. Training. It is that fast. Tim Elko made the team and lost it in the span of two innings. Brian Ramos looks uh, good defensively. He does actually, which is kind of interesting because that was one of the knocks on him. Right? Was yeah. was you know defensively he's a little stiff. He's not not bad, but he's he's not a fluid guy what does but here's the thing what does he bring different than what Moncada does if I look at his minor league numbers he's probably a 265 hitter he's probably a guy with an OPS in the high 700s but if he hits 800 he had a really good season he's not going to hit 20 home runs he's more of a guy that you're hoping gets 10 to 15 like I don't see anything in him that makes him an offensive juggernaut so yes he does need to play defense really well He's, a, he's an upgrade over what we've gotten from Mankata over the last couple years. He's not an upgrade over what's been promised that is never going to happen. But he's an upgrade over what we've seen over the last couple of years. So it'll be nice to see him there. But I wonder if I'll be sitting around in two years saying, why didn't we go after a free agent third baseman? Because this guy, you know, is is not, it's not what I need at third base to win championships. Like, I, I, I love the play that I saw from him at third base, but I don't see the bat down there. That makes me super excited about him eventually being the guy at third when they decide not to pick up Moncada's option because he doesn't have a six-war season this year. No, and I wouldn't worry too much about that because here's what I think happens there, honestly, is I think Colson Montgomery is your third baseman of the future, and I think that the that Chris Getz will want to continue to run out high defense-first shortstops and will give up offense at the shortstop position and let Montgomery rake at a corner infield spot where he's going to be just fine defensively because he's he's a shortstop. He's a middle infielder, and he can make that transition very easily. I, I'm not really concerned that Brian Ramos is the third baseman of the future. I think he is a guy that has to prove that he can do something for the major league team, and at best he is somebody that is going to be a stopgap until, like you said, they can find the next third baseman of the White Sox if it's not Yohan Moncada going forward. I don't know that it's going to be Brian Ramos, but that's that's also been the problem with the Sox farm system is guys either don't get a chance to develop or they get hung on to because there was some feeling like they were going to be something and they don't show it and they don't get let go until it's far too late in the process. So Ramos is kind of in a make or break camp. And so looking good defensively is going to help you. 
but you got to translate that 260, you know, seven, 800 OPS up to the majors, because if you do that on a consistent basis, yeah, you are an upgrade over Yohan Moncada, if nothing else, because you're cheaper. Right. But you have to, you have to get that to completely carry over and not drop off because you went from AAA to major league baseball, which is almost never done. Right. What I'll be looking for from him is, can he have a bigger offensive year in AAA this year? Then, then I might sit there and say, okay, fine. Maybe this guy's development. I mean, he isn't done yet. He's still young. He may find something there. Uh, but but like right now, like you keep hearing hype, like, oh, here's a guy who's going to be here eventually. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Like, I don't see anything that makes me like really excited about. Like, the only guy I'm really excited about is Colson Montgomery. Like, I want to see Colson Montgomery out there. And we're not going to see everybody early on here in spring because this is when you play guys that are going to be in minor league camp in a week or in two weeks. Right. Like, like Elko doesn't make it in the major league camp, probably for more no. than a couple of weeks. Ramos is not in the plans for this year. He'll eventually move off to the side. If you want to get a look at these guys, you do it early on because eventually you're going to have to whittle this down. You can't keep 70 guys in camp for the next four or five weeks. Like you can't do that. So Which I, I is why getting back to Jesse Chavez, literally maybe losing his chance. Oh, he's off the island. By coming out and having a bad inning, you know, that, that's us goofing around on one hand, but also that's a legitimately true thing that that there are, he may not get another reasonable look before the end of spring training. Right, he may get two B-level games and be gone. Like, I mean, that's the kind of guy who needed to come out hot right out of the gate, inning number one. He didn't. It's probably an indicator of what's going to end up happening to him. The other indicator, and I don't want to take a lot from spring training games, and we haven't even finished watching. Especially not the first one. No, but... I did notice that Paul DeYoung was hitting second. And I noticed on an indication of that's where he's going to be. But it does show that the manager sees him as somebody who can sit there. And he was somebody you mentioned as a possible two hitter when I didn't mention him as somebody I'd like there. So I found that interesting. He was in the two spot, at least for game one. You know, there's a school of thought with the two hitter that you put a guy there that could handle the bat that you don't really care about his his. Uh, batting average, but he can move guys around. He can bunt. He can do things, and he's not necessarily an automatic out or a guy that's gonna gonna hit you out of an inning. I don't know that I want Paul DeYoung up there. I was kind of like, oh, really? But you know, the other thing too is, is remember in spring training, sometimes we'll put guys at the top of the lineup because they get that extra at bat as the game goes on. So if you're really trying to show that Paul DeYoung has made adjustments, whether they're mechanical, mental, or whatever, to try and get himself back to where he reasonably should be as a major league hitter, then you got to give him every opportunity and you got to hit him towards the top of the order, at least in spring training. I wouldn't read too much into that unless it's, you know, opening day and he's sitting there at the two hole. This episode of Socks in the Basement and every episode of Socks in the Basement brought to you proudly by Cork and Carey at the Park, 33rd in Princeton in the shadow of the ballpark with an award-winning menu of burgers and ballpark favorites. And right now, get in there and register for a chance to go to Hawaii. Kona Brewing and Cork and Carey are partnering up and they're sending uh, they're sending you to Hawaii if you can just win this raffle that you don't even have to purchase anything. You can go in and get a $5 Kona draft and then register, or you can just go in and register. That That's what you can do, and you can do it at both locations, over at the park, or you can do it at the original location at 106th and Western. Cork and Carry at the park. Get on out there all season long. It is the perfect place for pregame, postgame, and even in-game viewing parties. At 33rd and Princeton, see more at corkandcarry.com. 
see more of these Major League Baseball players as well these this year. With, a lot more with with the pants that they're wearing. Intimately, yes, the the ghost oh, pants. Oh Lord! Like I showed my 16 year old son some of the pictures going around on Twitter, and the kid was falling off the couch laughing. Oh my God! And they're so bad. The one with the Padres player is it, or whoever it is, bent over. Oh like, no! That's yeah, just, that poor guy. Like, like the, the, all these. We we all know way too much about him. Here, now, here's don't we? the thing. Here's the thing. You better be wearing your protective cup this year if you're in the major leagues, because with the pants that Major League Baseball has provided these guys, they're see through. They're see through before you're in a rainy game. Right? Like, imagine a rain game. Oh, no. I didn't even thought about the rainy game. I I was thinking about, like, when you slide, okay, and you get a tear, right? You know, something like that. Because they've said the other problem is is not only are they see-through, but there's not enough of them. Teams don't have enough to actually go around for all their players. How is this this a thing in Major League Baseball? Like, we're talking about Major League Baseball. They call it the show, because you're going to a place like, like you know, they call you, it the show now because you get to see everything. Wait, what, but how many times have you seen movies where they talk to the rookie and they're like, what's it like in the major leagues? And they tell the, oh, the, the guy, goes, Crash the guy Davis goes, oh, in Bull Durham, you know, white baseballs for batting practice. They open the door for you at the hotels. Yeah. You, you know. And they give you pants that you can't see through and they give you enough pants so that you're able to wear backup pants if you tear the other pants. You know, the White Sox should just go back to the shorts. <laughs> the shorts would be better. Look, here, here's the thing. They're probably coverable. I am concerned about the amount of guys not wearing protective cups out there. I mean, the, 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 there are balls coming flying at you at over 100 miles an hour off the bat. There's balls flying everywhere. Then stop it. Stop it. The, the, what I'm saying is I am, I am actually confused as to how many pictures like that were already floating around on day one when these guys all over Major League Baseball are putting on their, their, their new pants. Because they, you know, I, I mean, a lot of them are going commando. And, like, I didn't realize that that was a thing in Major League Baseball. But it seems to be a thing right now. By the way, the first person to ever wear a cup in a Major League Baseball game was a Chicago White Sox player. I learned that from the Sox nerd. And he's here right now. Ah! That music means we have the Sox nerd on the line with tidbits galore as we get closer and closer to the season beginning. And he's brought to you by the Village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces filled with adventure. Visit the Village of Lamont. Shop, dine, drink, explore. See everything from live music to cross-country skiing, all kinds of events and everything coming up at LamontDowntown.com. Nerd, what's going on? Chris? The word fast has come up a lot lately in White Sox circles, so what better time to look at some fast Sox history? The two fastest Sox pitchers I ever saw were Mark Burley, obviously, and Jim Cott. My favorite Burley Express came on April 16, 2005, when he went the distance in a 2-1 to win over the Seattle Mariners before 25,931 on a Saturday afternoon at then-named U.S. Cellular Field. The game took 99 minutes. 99 minutes. It was over at quarter to three. There is no way this game should have been as fast as it was. After all, Burl struck out 12, and the game did feature eight hits. But when all the scoring comes on a pair of Paul Canerco solo homers and a triple by Ichiro, 
and a sack fly by Adrian Beltre, the game is going to motor. That was some game and another reminder at how awesome Mark Burley was. Jim Cott was famous for his fast games, particularly late in his baseball life. The left-hander resurrected his career with the White Sox in the mid-1970s with a rapid-fire style, and it propelled him to a 21-season and all-star bid, 11 additional campaigns, and ultimately the Hall of Fame. Cott's fastest game with the Sox was a 95-minute effort on Memorial Day 1975 in Detroit. But if you want to see Vintage Cott, Google the 1975 All-Star game where he represented the Sox and watch his two dominant innings in that one. By the way, the fastest White Sox full game ever was a 6 to nothing loss at Cleveland on April 23, 1936 that took one hour and five minutes. The fastest Sox base runner I've ever seen was Billy Hamilton. He was electrifying. The fastest Sox outfielder in my consciousness was Mike Cameron. I once saw him track down a ball in the Metrodome that I still can't believe he got to. The fastest Sox infielder I remember is one of my favorites, Ray Durham, who could track down pop flies and short right with the best of them. I know the fast floating around Glendale isn't totally about speed. It stands for fearless, aggressive, selfless, and technically sound. But for me, though, it could stand for find another stat trend. Before I get to my zinger, Chris, I want to let everyone know that you can find more fast socks nuggets on my blog, which you can link to at SocksInTheBasement.com. My zinger, Jesse Chavez was scheduled to start the Sox Catholic League opener on Friday against the Cubs. The right-hander is the oldest pitcher to start the spring opener for the Sox since fellow 40-year-old Jerry Royce did it in 1989. It's a safe bet that Chavez won't be starting on opening day. The last pitcher to start the Sox Cactus League opener and regular season opener was that cut-up Chris Sale in 2014. In fact, since the Sox moved spring training to Arizona in 1997, only Sale, James Baldwin in 1999, and Burley in 2004 have started both the spring and regular season opener. That's it, Chris. Probably more than you wanted to know about Burley, Cat, Durham, Hamilton, and especially spring training starters. Quick shout out to my Aunt Christine, who married my Uncle Jim, a lifelong White Sox fan, but she was from Wales, across the pond, and so she had no allegiance, so she gets to America and falls in love with Ryan Sandberg, like early 80s Ryan Sandberg did it for her. This is a memory that I have, like I'm probably six, seven years old, and somewhere there's a Cubs game on, and my aunt stops everything when he goes on the screen because he looked good in a pair of white pants. I can only imagine what it would have been like if Rhino had these pants. I'm just saying. For exterior windows, doors, patio doors, and storm doors, look no further than window and door superstore of Oak Forest. No high pressure sales with these guys. They don't come into your house. They don't sit around with like these dingy little example windows and then try to tell you, just imagine what it will be like. And now sign on the dotted line. Hurry up and do it before I leave because the price may change. Forget that. You show up in their superstore. You see everything right there, full size, no pictures in a book, owners in the showroom and on site to answer all of your questions, all window and door superstore employees installing it. They don't farm out the work. They've been doing it this way for 40 years in Oak Forest since 1985. All major brands custom made, no stock items for a perfect fit. They're a half block east of 159th and Ridgeland at 6280 159th Street. See more at windowdooroakforest.com. 
I found myself yesterday on the phone with dad talking baseball. I mean, I look, fathers and sons talking baseball. That, that's America. It's it's as American as apple pie, right? And it's spring training, and he's texting me about the game going on, and he's texting me about what he read about, and he's asking me questions, and we're getting all fired up about stuff. And the one thing that we just, we were reading each other's minds, having a conversation about Jerry Reinsdorf and his empty threats about leaving Chicago. He's trying to run the same game that he ran in the 80s. And he thinks, because he's a billionaire, that we're a bunch of mindless, stupid, poor people that don't know any better. And that we're not going to see exactly what he's doing. I called this when this guy started saying Nashville. Remember that? Oh, yeah. When this guy started suggesting Nashville, I was like, whoa, it's the Jerry Reinsdorf playbook. Wait for it. And then he does that meeting where the mayor of the mayor of Nashville may not even have been inquiring about the White Sox. Right. He just kind of was like, hey, you want to go get some lunch just to try to get some kind of buzz like I might go to Nashville. Nobody's falling for this. And now he's asking for a billion dollars and actually maybe even more, depending on what you're reading about the details for this new ballpark in the 78. And I love the article that came out in the Sun-Times. Uh, Daryl Van Schauen put this out. Uh, Reinsdorf save the Sox for Chicago argument has a familiar ring. And when you're reading the article that came out in the Sun-Times, the thing that I love about it is the story from one of the state representatives by the name of Kelly Cassidy. And Kelly, this is her quote, says, I was in Sarasota when he played this game, threatening to move the spring training facility. He got the facility and moved anyway to Arizona. My high school played at a state-of-the-art facility because somebody had to use it. You take that, you take the monstrosity down in Tampa that they thought the White Sox were going to be moving into. Everybody alive right now, legislators who were children at the time, they're still around, Jerry, and they vividly remember your game. And I don't think this guy's getting his money. And he can sit there and he can yell and he can scream about, I need this money or I might move. And I think nobody's going to take him seriously. If you take him seriously, you're a rube at this point. He is playing a game, trying to find a way to get everybody worked up. He's trying to find leverage. But what leverage do you have? You want to know why people didn't want that ballpark to be empty back in the 80s, and they fought so hard. Why young little Chris Lanuti, me, walked around his neighborhood trying to get people to sign a petition to keep the White Sox in Chicago, and then my local state representative read it in the state house as a plea from a young boy in a neighborhood who wanted to keep his team. You want to know why there was that sentiment back then? It was there because White Sox fans were so connected to the team because of previous owners. And what those owners had done to outreach to their fan base. My dad still talks about Bill Veck. Still talks about him. Still talks about how he'd be walking around in the stadium. He was like, he was like the owner who was your friend, right? And Jerry spent the last 40 years being the worst baseball owner, or at least one of the worst baseball owners, in the history of the city of Chicago. He's alienated his fan base. Even when asking for money, he's quoted as saying, I didn't get $3 because he felt like about 40000 short. I didn't get $3 million the year after the World Series. When the Dan Ryan was under construction, you didn't get $3 million? So he, he's still taking shots at his fan base while he's trying to get your tax dollars to pay for his stadium. And he's running the same gambit of 40 years ago. The problem is that Jerry Reinsdorf thinks he can do it again. And the sentiment about the team 40 years later and the feelings about him 
are so different. Nobody's going to fall for this, Ed. I don't believe anybody falls for what Jerry Reinsdorf is selling. Well, there's a couple things. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he insults the neighborhood and says that that's part of the reason why he can't draw. And yet we all know, again, we all know the, the playbook, Jerry. You have squashed development in that area and and made it so that there is nothing quite like Wrigleyville around the park. And you're sitting here talking about the 78 and how that's going to help you draw better. That's going to be a better thing. Well, but but is it really? Okay, because if you still put a lousy product on the field, people aren't going to show up to what is probably going to be a more expensive ballpark experience for them. Because we, we don't want to watch garbage on the field, even if the, the facilities are great. And there's really nothing wrong with the current stadium. I, I, I don't have a problem going and watching a baseball game there. The idea that an 80-year-old stadium that that was in need of repair, constant maintenance, was potentially falling apart because 80 years is a really long time for a building to stand, especially in a city with extreme weather you know, that, that comes and goes. There, there's a lot of reasons why we could sit there and say, okay, there's a, real, you know, a reality here of the White Sox maybe need to move if they can't get a new stadium built because Comiskey Park is, is old, right? It, it, it's, it's crumbling a little bit really wasn't that bad, but you know, still, but you're right. No one's buying at this time because Nashville would love to have a major league baseball team, but major league baseball is going to be very wary because of how badly the A's moved to Las Vegas. Well, then the fact that major league baseball has already telegraphed Ed, that it won't work. What what Jerry Reinsdorf is trying to pull isn't going to work when you have the, the commissioner of baseball saying, I'm going to be here for five more years. And by the time that I'm done, I want two more expansion teams, at least in motion, if they haven't started playing by already. So what you're going to do is you're going to tell me that you're going to pull a team out of the third largest market in the country, and you're going to move that team to a small market. And then with an opening, you're not going to replace that team with one of the expansion teams. Like, I, I believe that if Jerry Reinsdorf actually moved There'd be a new team in here, and they'd probably give you the White Sox name, like when the Browns moved and became the Ravens. We, we've already talked about that when he when he first threatened to, to when he was first having lunch with the guy in Nashville that we would have we would be the Cleveland Browns of the MLB, where the White Sox name, the White Sox history, everything about the White Sox would stay, except for Jerry Reinsdorf, Chris Getz, and whatever team that they put on the field. Okay? And I'd be fine it, with that. That's 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 the thing. Like him leaving right now wouldn't bother me. Heck, I'd finally be able to watch the team on MLB TV, and I wouldn't get a blackout. And that's that's a plus, right? Exactly. And when you combine State Farm Home and Auto Insurance, you save an average of eight hundred eighty-nine dollars. See how I'm slipping this in there? State Farm agent John Harrell is ready to help you combine home and auto and save in Chicagoland. Call him today, 708-481-4500. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Average annual per household savings based on a 2019 national survey by State Farm of new policyholders who reported savings by switching to State Farm. Listen, what is your threat in the year 2024 that's supposed to make me upset as a fan if you move to Nashville? Right. Like what is what is the threat? Is it well, you won't be able to enjoy baseball. I'll go to Crestwood and go to Ozinga Field and watch a Thunderbolts game with my kid. And and we'll just hang out and have like cheap food and a nice experience. And if I want to go to a major league game, as much as I hate to admit it, I'll go to Wrigley or I'll go to oh, Milwaukee or Milwaukee. I'll travel down to see the team if I'm still into the White Sox after they leave and I don't get an expansion team. And I'll watch them on television. You know, the media is different now. The way you consume games is different now. You, you're not... You, you know, if you're going to insult, if you're going to insult the entire neighborhood and you're going to destroy them and say, well, that they're the reason why I can't make money, 
then are they really going to weep when you leave? Like, it's it's not going to be the same feeling. So I don't think anybody is going to get so upset if he decides to move his team. And I don't think he can realistically move his team. You can't tell me that if you move to a smaller market, you'll make more money. The problem here is not where Jerry Reinsdorf is located or the fact there's two teams in Chicago. The problem here is that Jerry Reinsdorf is a bad owner who can't figure out how to make money with a team in this market. He's a bad business owner and he's a bad baseball owner. And wherever he goes, he's going to be a bad business owner and a bad baseball owner. And this whole idea now, I mean, this is crazy. The new idea is, well, my kids are going to sell the team. And what if the new owner moves the team? Why would a new owner move a team out of a market this size? Trust me, I get that all the time. For years, I was an attorney who handled probate matters and I and, and estate planning. And I would get that, you know, well, what happens if my kids do this with my money? And I, the, the thing I always point out to them is, you're dead. It doesn't matter to you, Okay. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter to the fans what a new owner is going to do, because like you said, first of all, they're already in Chicago. It's already a better market than Nashville. Okay. Nashville's a great town. Don't get me wrong, but it's not Chicago. It's not the third biggest market. New in, ownership is not buying the White Sox to move it. That's but absurd. Here's, here, here's what this is. Okay. The other thing too is, is that you, you hit on it for a second there when you were talking about the media, when Jerry was doing this the first time around. He was trying with Sports Vision and Sports Channel, with cable still being relatively in its infancy, to control the TV market for the team just as much as he was controlling the fans and, and having them come in and get the gate. The, the problem with Jerry is, is that he has never figured out a way to monetize showing the White Sox on TV because he's got he's got his little ownership stake in NBC Sports Chicago, uh, you know, he, he doesn't really have the, the network that he wants. Okay. And it, it's never panned out from the way Eddie Einhorn wanted it to when he was around and part of the White Sox picture. Cause that was what Eddie Einhorn's vision was, was the sports channel was having that marquee network that the Cubs have, frankly. And it's never really panned out for Jerry that way, partially because watching White Sox baseball sometimes is extremely depressing and it's hard to watch on TV because it sucks. All right. And ask the Cubs, did the Cubs draw a ton of viewership in some of their worst, bleakest years? Nah, probably not. Okay. They had the lovable loser thing. Wrigley Field's a great place to go out and, and people watch. And that was all they really had. What Jerry needs to understand and what, what he doesn't understand, I don't think that we understand, is that, like you said, White Sox fans can still be White Sox fans from here, from the south side of Chicago even if you're in Nashville. In fact, we could be better fans because now we can stream. And here's okay? the thing. We'd be at the ballpark and you'd be making more money if you spent money. If you spent money, here's a guy who's never given a $100 million contract out and he wants a billion dollars. Like if you spent money and you tried to win, you would make money. And there are actual published studies. I brought it up on the show before. There's a book called Scorecasting and Scorecasting talks about the impact of teams and the, how well they're playing and their investment into their team and how it translates to whether or not they make money and they get more people at the gate. And the White Sox and the Yankees were the two teams in which what they did on the field impacted attendance more than any other team in Major League Baseball when the study was made. And incidentally, the Cubs, what impacted them the most was changing the price of beer. But for the White Sox at the time of the study, I'll well, see. There you go. And the White Sox at the time of the study, White Sox fans show up if you're winning. That has not changed. He sits around. And he says, "Well, I didn't draw three million after we won the World Series. Okay, but you did draw a lot more, and people 
show up at that ballpark when they think they're seeing something good. Your attendance problems are because you get off the really bad starts over the last couple of years. You've hired the wrong people. You've mismanaged your business and you've mismanaged your baseball team. If there's any reason for you not making money, it's you, Jerry Reinstorf. You're the reason you don't make money. You're a guy who was handed a baseball team because your buddy Bud Selig didn't want DiPartolo, who ends up buying the 49ers and making him into a dynasty, to bring in all of his money and all of a sudden tip the scales amongst all these owners enjoying antitrust exemptions. For the same reason they hate Cohen, they hated him. And you are the hand-picked, bring this guy in and give him a place because he's got money, he isn't going to rock the boat, He thinks like the rest of us billionaires, and who cares if he's smart enough to actually run the team? And you proved you're not smart enough to run the team. And what you've done over the years, you've you've surrounded yourself with all these glad-handing yes-men who tell you you're so wonderful, and that's why they have jobs for life. But when you walk outside, if you were to hire with your billions of dollars, just one outside consultant who is going to realistically come in and tell you what the problem is, I guarantee you that the title of the report would be The Problem with Jerry Reinstorf's White Sox is Jerry Reinstorf. And when you're gone, new ownership will do better than you. I'm completely convinced of it because anybody who has the money and the ability to get through the process to purchase a Major League Baseball team is going to be more qualified than you are to run it. And they're not moving this team. And this whole idea, all he wants to do, Ed, all he wants to do is build the biggest statue of himself that he possibly can. He wants to build a neighborhood because if he builds a neighborhood and he has a big, giant, shiny, brand new stadium there, there'll be a Jerry Reinsdorf something, whether it's a statue or the name of the field or or a level something. He will be remembered well after this old man is dead. And that's what he's doing because it's going to be very hard to move it after you build an entire neighborhood around it. He is cementing himself as something left behind because he's a tottering old man. I saw him walking through the statehouse. He's an old man who doesn't look like he's in very good shape, who sounds weak when he speaks and shuffles his feet. He knows he's at the end. He knows he's he's at the he's in the last chapter. He knows that, all right? And so now what he wants to do is he wants to find a way to not touch his money, but to build a legacy so you will see him somewhere and people will sit there and say, this is what Jerry Reinsdorf built. He doesn't want to invest his own billions of dollars. If he really believed it, think about this. If you're a guy worth over $4 billion, according to Forbes, and you really believed that investing a billion to $2 billion into this thing was going to net the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago four or five times as much or whatever he's pitching, right? If you really believe that and you wanted to leave something for your children, you'd invest your own money so you would get all the rewards. But you don't actually believe it. If you really want to leave something for your kids, you would invest your own money so they would make $8 billion, but you're, you don't actually believe it. And that's why it's, it, it's, it's just a card game. That's all he's doing. He's just trying to, he's trying to fool you and he's using the same stuff that he used to use. And thankfully, thankfully, the situation isn't the same. You don't have Jim Thompson, the governor, another guy who wanted to have his name on everything. Walk through downtown. There's Jim Thompson, this Jim Thompson, that the Thompson center. I mean, like everything's Jim Thompson all over the place. Right. And he was getting ready to leave and he didn't want anybody. He didn't want to be the guy that lost the White Sox. Right. You don't have that. You don't have that governor there. 
You don't have the same financials here. You don't you don't live in a world where people are going to sit there and say it's good investment to give billions to billionaires. Now with social media and the way that the, that the, the population looks at rich people, you're costing votes to these people that you need to vote for your proposal. And you can't get the public swelling of people saying, no, don't move the team. Little kids like me walking around and trying to gather signatures to try to keep the team. You're not going to find that. It's a different era, old man. You're past your time. You had your chance. You didn't do very well. You lucked into a World Series where a bunch of guys had career years. And you caught lightning in a bottle. And you got Michael Jordan which I think any owner in, base, in in basketball, if they would have gotten Michael Jordan, would have had six titles, and a lot of them would have had eight or nine. So please, seriously, go away. Just sit in your stadium in your nice little office over at 35th and Shields with your big oak desk. Do, a, do an interview every once in a while on your own network where you're going to get questions that are already approved ahead of time and nobody's going to edit it to make you look bad. And slip off into the sunset, let your children sell the team, and I look forward to new ownership, which is not moving this team to Nashville. In the meantime, I think Jerry Reinsdorf has created such a hatred amongst the fan base that the White Sox might be the only team that could actually sign Trevor Bauer and be applauded for it. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if that would work. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.